or good evening for the first time. Uh, good morning again or something, you know, something again. But it's good to see y'all. Uh, we we'll be preaching to this side tonight. I can see y'all got more people in the back, but uh, I have to slide y'all forward or something. Uh, but it's good to have y'all here. Uh, we've uh, really enjoyed our time here with you guys today. We uh, were a little late getting in here tonight. We were here about six o'clock or a little after, but we didn't get the two dollar and a quarter tour until uh, a little bit ago. So, <laughs> but anyways, uh, if you got your Bibles, uh, take uh, your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter three tonight. Genesis chapter number three. Um, if you don't know where that is, find Genesis one. If I open up your Bible and then turn about two pages, you will get there. I promise. Uh, Genesis chapter number three. Familiar passage, familiar things, but um, for me, Genesis is perhaps one of my favorite books of the Scripture. And you say, we're well, not supposed to have favorite books of the Bible, preacher, right? They're all, all your favorites, right? Well, come on, let, let's be honest, right? We all got our favorites, don't we? Uh, Genesis and Hebrews, uh, for me, are probably my right, right there, and then followed by Romans, and then the book of Hezekiah is right there. Y'all, y'all read Hezekiah, right? No? All right, all right. A couple Bible scholars out there got me. Okay, good deal. Those that got me, y'all have read your Bibles, right? The rest of you, I'm not too sure. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Tonight, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at what I believe to be the theme of all of Scripture. I want you to know that tonight, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a theme of Scripture, and I believe it is the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is the divine revelation of God. It is how God has showed Himself to us. And many of us today would love, and there's many people today who would love it, if God just showed up, with a big bright neon sign and told us he's real and who he is and all about him, but he's done that already, and he's done it through this book. Uh, there is uh, the revelation that which God gives, which is a general revelation, which is in the sense of uh, the creation that we see all around us, these beautiful green hills and pastures, um, and, and we see as well our, our conscience speaks that there's a creator, the law of God written upon our hearts is what the scripture tells us. But then we find the special revelation, which is, uh, the Scripture in the Savior Himself, and that is Christ. Now tonight, we're going to find Genesis. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. It's what it means by its own name. Uh, and it's, you guessed, it's at the beginning of the Bible. It's right there for a reason. The book of Genesis, specifically, I would say, the first 15 chapters set up the whole rest of the Bible. If you want to understand all of Scripture, understand the first 15 chapters. And you could study those every day, I believe, for a year and still not unpack all that there really is. There is so much meat just in the first, I mean, the first uh, few words, in the beginning, God. I mean, you, you could, that's a, a year's worth of sermons right there. You know, <laughs> you never know, right? The mind of a preacher, there's, that's a year's worth right there. Chapter number two goes on to discuss the, the details of God's creation. And then uh, at the end of chapter two, we find that everything starts off great in the Bible. God's made everything and it's good. He even makes man and wife and marriage and it's the first marriage and it's the first perfect marriage, isn't it? Except mine, except ours. But we find their perfect marriage. The reason why the marriage was perfect is because it had two people who had not yet sinned. The moment that there is sin in the world, everything falls apart. And so we come to chapter 3, and if you've read your Bible all the way to Hezekiah, you know what happens in Genesis 3. This is the fall of man. This is the fall of not just a man, but man, all of humanity. The same way that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second Adam as he is called, 
in Scripture, represents my sin and your sin, those who have all put their trust in him. Adam represents all of humanity. He is a, a figurehead. He is representing us all here. And when he sins, we all sin. We all now are born with the sin curse, the sin nature. But I want to find the theme of all the Bible tonight, and I'm going to try to do so in a brief period of time. Now, there's a whole lot in this chapter, and tonight I'm doing a, a broad 30,000-foot overview, all right? And that's to look at the whole of Scripture. The theme of the Bible, I would say, coming from Genesis chapter 3, is we're going to find the pattern of man, the pattern of God. First of all, let's begin. The pattern of man goes from about verse 1 to verse 13 or so. It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Who's the serpent? Y'all already know it's Satan, right? This is the devil who is the adversary of God's people, even the adversary of God himself. But I want you to know, and the great news tonight is as uh, terrible as Satan is and as awful as he is and as much damage as he does as the prince and power of the air and the, the ruler of darkness over this world, what we know is that he can only go as far as the Lord allows him, that he is still yet on a leash, if you will. As we look, you can go read the book of Job in the first two chapters. We find two instances where the devil and the fallen angels have to come and present themselves before God. And God asks them a couple questions. They give the response. They still have to answer to him. And there's coming a day, the great news for us, is that there's coming a day where Satan will have his final time of standing before God and God will say, gone, right? Into a lake of fire forevermore. Now, we find, though, that he comes down to disrupt the creation of God. Why? Because everything was good. Everything was good in heaven until Satan himself decided he wanted what God had, what God alone deserves. He says, and he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Well, did God say that? What did God say? But God had told them just a chapter ago that they are to not eat of that one particular tree for their own good, so that they would not die. And this would be a spiritual death, and really a spiritual death for all of humanity. And so he says, did God say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What he's doing and what Satan has always done, the same thing that you and I know, and that is to get us to question God's word. The moment that we get outside of God's word is the moment we're going to be getting into sand and shifting foundation and into all sorts of trouble and issues this is why Satan has always, and especially the past 150 years we've watched in our nation, and really throughout the world, a major attack on the foundation of Christianity. What is the foundation? It is the Word of God, how He has revealed Himself to us. This is why even in a lot of Bible colleges today, and a lot of, uh, a lot of other schools, and even in a lot of churches, so-called churches, they'll take Genesis 1-11 through 11 and say, well, that's just a, written as a, a myth, that you can't believe it all literal, if you can't take Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the Bible as true, as God's authoritative word, you can't take any of it, right? To take one verse and say, well, no, that one's not true. Well, then the rest isn't. All of this book is true because it is God-breathed, God-inspired. It has been God-preserved and God-kept because it is the way that God desires that we would know him. Now, he says to the woman in verse number two, rather, the woman said unto the serpent, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. There's an importance here that we find that Adam was supposed to be taking care of this woman. At the end of the day, for every marriage, that man is supposed to be taking care of her, 
not to overlord in the sense of, hey, you better not go there. What are you doing this? What are you doing that? But rather in the sense of helping to disciple and to teach her because he had walked with God at least for a little bit while. He knew the rules, right? He had been given the rules and the responsibility and the role to take care of not just her, but God's creation. Go back, if you look back in, in uh, Genesis 2, uh, God is telling him, I'm, basically, I'm making you a garden. You're going to protect not just the land and, and preserve it and to garden it, but really in the sense, the idea is that he gave Adam the authority to keep it sinless. And what Adam would do would be the cause of its destruction. Look at verse 4. It says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Satan is called the father of lies, and here is the biggest lie he's told. It says, for God, hath know, uh, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Our human nature believes and wishes and thinks that we are God. Uh, that is what idolatry is. That's what Satan wanted. Satan wanted what God had. Now, here's where we're getting to the real part of man's pattern. If we understand this, all of Scripture and all of human history, we often think of human history having the, the beginning, Right? And then it goes in a long, straight line over to however far eternity goes, right? I I firmly believe as we look throughout human history, we find rising and falling of empires. And it seems we hear phrases like what goes around comes around or uh, uh, history repeats itself. I believe that is true because our human nature has always been the same since this terrible day in the Garden of Eden. So we are always repeating these same patterns. Here's the pattern that we find in in verse number 6. It says, And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, gave also to her husband with her. The worst part of that verse is found, and he did eat. The representative of all human race decides he's going to eat that too, because, well, she didn't die, so I must be fine. I want to focus in on this verse for a moment. The pattern of man begins with rebellion. If we don't have to know too much about mankind to know that we are natural rebels at heart. Even the, the, the people who follow all the rules, we naturally want to push and see how far we can take that line. We want to see how far we can go. It's like the child who gets told there's fresh cookies in the cookie jar. Don't touch them. Well, what does the child do? He's reaching. He might not touch, right? Or we think about little kids or maybe if you're, you know, 27 years old and not that mature and you go up to your wife and you put your finger right there near her shoulder and you say, I'm not touching you, right? Think about that. This sort of natural rebellion to see how far can I go before I get burned, before I get in trouble. If they had gone too far. We are natural rebels at heart. Now, up to this point, Adam and Eve, they had not sinned, but they had the ability to sin. If you have the ability to sin, you will sin. Many people ask the question, and if you have a a questioning mind, I have nothing wrong with that because I'm always asking questions in my mind, especially as I read the Bible about things. You often go and look at this and go, well, how long were they there in the garden? Or do you think, and I get this question a lot and gotten it a lot from working with teenagers and adults alike, of, uh, well, if he wouldn't have done it then, how long do you think it would have taken for him to eat of it? Or do you think anyone ever would have? What if Adam and Eve didn't, they had kids in the garden, and do you think maybe they would have done it? Somewhere down the line, if someone had the ability to sin, they would have sinned, right? Plain and simple. But the reason why is something that 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, and that is what we find in verse 6. The lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you want to boil sin down to rebellion and lawlessness, you can really pinpoint it down to one of those things. There is either a lusting of our flesh or of our eyes, something that we see, something that we want, we, we covet, or this pride of life, which is, of course goes back to the very first sin as we find with, with Satan, this sort of boastful pride. Really what pride is and what pride is doing is, if you spell out pride, Dr. Bowman used to say P-R-I-D-E, eyes in the middle. It's a focus of self. To focus on self and to lift up ourself is what we would call, what the Bible would call, idolatry. And even blasphemy against the holy God who had made them and placed them in a perfect place. You want to talk about having a perfect condition to not sin. They had a perfect condition. They lived in a perfect place. They had perfect food, perfect animals, right? perfect pets. right? They had, they had perfect father who walked with them. I mean, they could not have asked for a better situation. And what do they still find a way to do? They still have a propensity to lust. It says, and when the woman saw the tree was good for food. People will often wonder, and I do too, asking questions about the Bible. Well, did they get hungry like we do? Clearly, yeah. Here she looks at this and she says, well, that looks like it's good for food. You know, it's not a bad looking thing. A lot of times when it's depicted as like this tree, you think of like some sort of evil, wicked tree. You think about... Maybe the apple from Snow White or something that's the poisoned apple or sort of dark and spooky looking. I don't, I don't think so here. Satan is often depicted as a, you know, in the cartoons, he's got a red tail and red devil horns and red body and all that stuff and a pitchfork, right? The Bible describes Satan comes as an angel of light. He wants to come to look good for you, right? The things that often look the best are the worst, right? You can have an apple that looks beautiful on the outside, but sometimes on the inside, I think it can be pithy, nasty, gross, right? Nobody wants that. Here what she finds is that she says this was good for food. It would have satisfied her flesh. That's what we're always looking for, isn't it? That's why when you leave here, you might get some food. You got lunch at some point today. You're going to eat at some point this week because there's going to be some sort of fleshly desire that you need something good. You might even just have something that you know, maybe I'm not even supposed to have all these carbs, I'm not supposed to have this you know, snack cake, whatever it might be, you're going to eat it. Why? Because we have this lustful flesh, but then we find the next part, and so she says it was pleasant to the eyes, it looks good. And third, it says, in a tree to be desired to make one wise. And there's some pride there. The pride of life that we find has creeped in, and what she does is instead of saying no to the lust of flesh, and no to the lust of the eyes and no to the pride of life. She now eats of it. Three chances to say no, and what does she do? She strikes out. It's the same pattern that we have today, isn't it? I would guarantee you and myself, I know me, I don't know you, but you're probably a little bit like me, that you know you're about to do something, say something that you know you're not supposed to do, and you've already had that first ball come in to you, and you know, uh-uh, don't, don't do it, right? And you might say no the first time to the lust of the flesh, but then you, you keep lingering on it. The Bible tells us to flee from sin, to run from sin, to run from our lustful deeds and practices. Not just to like back away and kind of be like, hey, no, not today. We'll make me look again. There's no, no double looks, second looks. It's when sin is there, run. The best thing she could have done there was take off running, but... She's got someone in her corner. It says she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
Now, this brings, of course, terrible consequences. It says the eyes of them both were opened. Now, their physical eyes had been opened already. They could see each other. As a matter of fact, if you go back at the end of chapter 2, their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked, but they did not even know what nakedness was, right? They had always been that way. There was yet no shame, no sin that had, uh, that had, had made it unacceptable or, or guilty feeling or dirty feeling. That's why we're all wearing clothes tonight because we know it's not right to go around walking that way. We know it, it's in us now. For them, before this, it wasn't. It says they knew that they were naked. They find their first problem. They both eat. Adam eats. They look at each other and realize something looks different about you. But nothing was different. They looked the same, but what was different was something on the inside, and that was now sin had entered into the heart and it changed the outside. Uh, immediately everything is different in the world and in the universe forever. And then what happens is they say, well, we've got to fix this thing. And it says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons to literally cover up their nakedness. It, what is it when you take fig leaves to cover up your nakedness? That's what, what uh, A.W. Tozer would call fig leaf religion. It is man's work. It's saying, oops, mom said not to touch the cookies. I touched all the cookies and broke the cookie jar, and now there's a mess in the kitchen. Now what do I do? Well, I've got to eat all the cookies and get rid of this jar that's broken now, right, before she gets back because I'm in real bad trouble. And it's the kid taking everything, eating all the cookies with the chocolate and the crumbs all over themselves and taking the jars and trying to put it under the kitchen rug. And there's a nice little lump over the, in the rug now, right, and, and go, Mom's never going to notice. Mom comes walking into the kitchen and clearly notices. Man's nature and our rebellion is to always make sure that we can try to fix it ourselves. What happens when we fix it ourselves? We're still naked. Now they just have their own deteriorating clothes on. The moment that they put those fig leaves together and make those aprons is the moment that they start being moth-eaten and the moment they start to deteriorate. Then it says, and they heard the voice of the Lord, God. Uh-oh walking in the garden the cool of the day for this fellowship that which they had shared in. It says, And Adam and his wife now hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We find that the pattern of man is, number one, rebellion, but number two, it is running. Instead of running to God to fix the problem, man runs away from God. I often wonder when I read this passage, what would have happened is if Adam and Eve, the moment that they looked up and saw that they were naked, and say, we're in trouble, and instead of hearing God's voice running away from him, instead ran to him. They're now trying to get away from the God of the universe, and if we're honest with our own sin, none of us try to sin where everybody else can see it, do we? No. That's why probably most of the sins that we commit happen here and here, and less out here. Why? Because people can see what happens out here. But we think we can hide our sin if we keep it here or here, but yet the Lord God sees there was no escaping this God of the universe. There's no escaping him. And yet they think, here's what they do. Here's the insanity that sin does. That they go and they hide amongst the trees. It would be like me trying to hide behind that chair. It's not going to work too good. I might be able to hide behind that pulpit, but if I get down that low, I'm not getting back up. And we think if you take a kid, many times a child, if they're playing hide-and-go-seek or playing games, they have this sort of mentality that if I can't see you, you can't see me. 
Adam and Eve play the same game with God because they realize their sin. They take off running away. They hide behind a tree. They run from God and run from their problems. They run from the solution. Who is God? God is the solution. They run away and they try to hide behind a tree thinking maybe he won't notice. It says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Did God not know where Adam was? Of course he knew where Adam was. He's desiring that Adam would come out from behind those trees and come to him. That's always been God's desire, is that people would come to him. His desire is to make his creation right and to keep it good, to protect his people, to help his people that he's made. It says in verse number 10, And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Up until that point, we do not find a time where Adam had a reason to be afraid. Why? Because he had not sinned. Now, I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves tonight that when we sin, we realize that we have a little bit something to be afraid of because we've sinned against a holy and a righteous God. And the moment that we even commit the smallest, minuscule sins, it's this big. It's huge. And it's a stain that we can't get rid of. It's taking this shirt and tie and squirting a whole gallon of mustard on it. It ain't going away. Everyone can see it. That's what sin does, and it's before the face of God. And he says, I was afraid. I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In verse 11, and he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, we go from the rebellion to the running. Now we get the response of man. The response of man is never a good one. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us what can the clay save to the potter? What can the thing formed respond to that which made him? And that thing who came from dust and dirt and had life breathed into him by God looks now at God in his nakedness, hiding behind a tree, doing this, right? Says to God, verse number 12, the response of man is always to blame. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. This verse, we miss out on it if we just read it surface level. We would look and say, well, Adam blames Eve. Well, who does Adam really blame here? He doesn't just blame Eve. He certainly does not take the blame himself, but he says, it's the woman that you gave me. Can you imagine the audacity to be the only one of the only two people on the planet who has literally been walking with the God who made that planet and all the universe day in and day out, and now because of your sin, you're naked and afraid and separated from him and hiding behind a tree. He asks and questions you, and you have to say, it's your fault because you gave me that woman anyways. There are times that we even blame God for circumstances. Well, I wouldn't have sinned if this wouldn't have happened in my life or if this wouldn't have happened. James, the book of James tells us that it is not God who bringeth about our temptation or our sinfulness, but it's rather when we're driven by our own lustful flesh. Who are we that we would blame God for anything? Especially when it comes to our sin. But that's what man does here. He says, it's the woman that you gave me. He said, I was fine by myself, and then you gave me that woman, and, and now look where we are. Now we're naked, and everything's not right. Now then God says to the woman, verse 13, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. She says, I'm tricked. It was him, and you made him too, by the way. 
It's not a thing that was made in the world that was not made by the hands and the breath and the mouth of God, including Satan and the angels who had fallen. They were once made by God. Everything known and created by God and for His own glory and goodwill and good pleasure. But His creation falls in rebellion, runs from Him, and now responds to Him and wants to blame Him for it. We find the second thing. Verse 15 on is the pattern of God. The pattern of God could not be further opposite from the pattern of man. The pattern of man is God says this, so I think I'll do the opposite. God says, meet here, I'll run away. Right? God says, who are you that you could speak that way to me and I'm going to blame him? The pattern of God is tremendous. Look at verse number 14. It says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field upon the belly, thou shalt go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Verse 15. Perhaps one of the most important verses of all of Scripture. I believe it is Genesis 3.15 that truly sets up the foundation and the framework for the rest of the Bible. And here it is. You ready? All right, good. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first... The first gospel giving. The gospel means good news. If anybody needed good news at that time, it was Adam and Eve. They're naked and hiding from God. They've just sinned and thrust the whole world into sin, you and I included. And what happens is God instead of which he could have at that moment. And we have to understand this. God at that moment would have been perfectly just and holy and good and gracious if he would have snatched up Adam in one hand, snatched up Eve, and went like that to the devil, and thrown them all into hell forever. And then never made anybody else. Would have been just in doing so, but instead, how does God respond to man's sin? He responds by giving grace and mercy. And there is justice, but the justice would not be served to man, but rather upon His own Son, who would become our sins and pay the price of our sins on the cross of Calvary. And this is promised from the very first sin. Notice that the very first sin, God does not just say how bad man is, how they don't deserve anything. Rather, what he does is he says, I'm going to show you that there is only redemption through me, that you must be redeemed, and here's the way it's going to happen. He gives good news, and he gives grace and mercy, and he describes what's going to take place throughout all the rest of Genesis and throughout all the rest of Scripture. There would now be a division between his seed and her seed, meaning the seed of the serpent, Well, what is the seed of the serpent, the seed of the devil? Those are unbelievers. Those are those who do not come to Christ. Those who uh, run away from Him and His gospel. Those who do not, those are the ones who do not repent and believe. Well, what about the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is interesting. The seed of the woman, first and foremost, points to the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Jesus Christ, the divine Word of God, uh, the divine revelation of God. Jesus is promised to come here. Jesus is always and always and always has existed because He's the very one who was there at the framework of it all and creating things and by His hand holding up all things. But He's promised to them that the seed of the woman is going to come and is going to bruise the head of the serpent and His heel would be bruised. The idea is less about that you're going to get a 
a little lump on Satan's head, but rather you would crush that thing like a bug, like, a, like he would a snake, and dig his heel into it. It might bruise his heel in the sense that Christ certainly suffered. His body would be bruised and broken and bloodied for us, but Satan would be destroyed and conquered. Hell, death, and the grave uh, conquered and destroyed forevermore through the work of Christ on Calvary. Now, all the rest of the Bible, and specifically in Genesis 2, as you find as you're reading throughout the Scripture, you find two main things. You find those who don't believe. That's the seed of the serpent. You find those who do believe. The seed of the woman. Pointing to those faithful people who would follow the Lord. Because it would just be a couple more chapters. You find chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's descendants. And the descendants are given, and what happens is you start to find a godly lineage. If you look in chapter 4, the first few verses, what happens is Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and buried Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I believe in that moment she thinks in her heart that she's holding the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. Instead, she would be holding Cain who would murder his brother. The very opposite of a redeemer. He would fall into the same sin that her and her husband Adam fell into rebellion and running from God. And what we find, though, is the pattern of God is not just giving of the gospel and giving of good news and promising this, and all throughout Scripture and human history, working these things out. Because if you read all of the Bible and you look and you see, there's Jacob who trusts the Lord, Esau who doesn't. There's, there's those Israelites who trust the Lord and others who don't. There's this constant ebb and flow of seeing the seed pointing all the way down the lineage and if you read Matthew and Luke, you get the lineage of Christ. And who does it point to? It points to Jesus. From the very beginning, it points to Christ. And if you were to read Revelation 22, which is the last chapter in the Bible, and then read it backwards, you know what it's pointing to? Jesus. You could go forward and backward, and you're going to come to one main point, and that is Christ who has come to redeem sinners. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's why we're here tonight. That's why we're alive tonight. That's why we're born again tonight. It's not because of what we've done, but because all of human history, all of eternal history points to what Jesus has done for us. And it's promised there the very first time that sin enters this world. As you continue on, he gives these sort of judgments upon me. He says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply the sorrow of thy conception and sorrow that shall bring forth children and Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground for the out of it wast thou taken, from dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. There are certainly consequences for sin, but the first thing that God does before delivering and throwing out justice and throwing out all these things is He throws out grace. The Scripture tells us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that His mercy is everlasting to everlasting. It's who God is. God is always pursuing His people always pursuing to redeem and to reconcile that which cannot redeem and reconcile themselves. They had made temporary clothes of fig leaves. 
And here's what God does in verse 21. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. What God does here is the unthinkable. God takes an innocent life to clothe the guilty. Who does that sound an awful lot like? It's Jesus. It is a picture of what the cross does. It is a picture of what Jesus, who is promised in chapter 3, verse 15, would do. He would literally take off His innocent skin and coat, if you will, to clothe us. That it would be His bloodshed. If you're going to skin an animal, what does that mean you have to do to it first? You have to kill it. It has to be dead. It has to be bled and slaughtered so that way you can receive that skin to be clothed. What does God do? He makes a way when there is no other way. Those fig leaves would fall off eventually. They'd have to keep going. And that reminder as well is why God does the innocent life for the guilty to clothe them is for that, exactly for that reason. It's so that the next generation, the generation after that, and all the way down to you and I in 2021 would know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that you and I are guilty before God. And the only way that we can be reconciled and made right or redeemed, bought back, is through the innocent dying for the guilty. That Christ took our place. We find God's grace and His mercy and His love, His compassion towards us. Certainly there is justice and judgment that is given to them and ultimately to those who are the seed of the serpent who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we find more so than anything all of who God is and His grace and His mercy and His love that what Adam and Eve deserved was hell because of their guiltiness, but instead what they receive is an innocent life on their behalf. If you and I think tonight about what you and I really deserve, it would probably bring tears to her eyes, and a cold sweat. To think about the horrors of what hell would be like. We can shout and praise God for the glories of what heaven would look like, but could you imagine a moment there? I don't deserve just a moment in hell. I deserve eternity there. But instead, what Christ has done for you and I tonight is taken our place. What we find in Genesis 3 is paradise lost. But we also find a paradise promised. In Revelation chapter 22, you can turn there with me and we'll be done. Revelation chapter 22. Verse number 1. And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river there was the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of a tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face and His name shall be their, on their foreheads, in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We find a greater paradise restored. That there is no more curse there. The greatest thing perhaps about heaven besides being in the presence of our Savior is the fact that you and I will never fail our God again. 
I cannot imagine the weight that Adam carried for the rest of his life. He had let not just his wife down, not just his children down later on, all of humanity. You and I, I can't imagine how many people I've let down, how many people I'll continue to let down. But more so than anything, we've let God down. The great news tonight, though, is that for every sin that I have, His grace is there. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I appreciate you guys being so patient, so sweet to us today. I'm going to close us in, in prayer, and I hope that tonight has been a blessing and a reminder of God's goodness and His faithfulness. And may we carry that in our hearts as we go from this place. I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. And may the Lord bless you all. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this night. I thank You for Your Word. And Lord, there truly is so much depth and riches in it that we could just dig and dig and dig. But God, we thank You most of all tonight that You have made a way when there was no way. Lord, You have shed Your Son's blood so that we might be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Lord, that we might be reconciled and restored and redeemed to You. Lord, help us to live that way. In those of us now, O Lord, who are in Christ Jesus, that we would live knowing that there is no more condemnation or separation. And Lord, that we might live for You, for Your honor and for Your glory. I pray now for each person that's here tonight, God, that You would empower them, strengthen them, prepare them for the work week and for whatever's to come as they go from this place, God, that You would just use them to be a light in this dark world. Lord, we love and we thank You, and I pray, Lord, that You would bless this church, bless these folks, and all those others who are of your seed, who desire to live for you by faith alone. We ask all this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all.